0: Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Hi Alison.
1: Hello Grace. Nice to see you on you, you virtual,
0: online Zoomy type things. Yeah, you've got a rather interesting background this time. I have. Well, in my job, we're told
1: now that we have to have a background on our screen, you know, rather than just the room that I'm in my study.
0: So um, it's pink blossom from the spring. So it's rather marvelous. It's lovely but it's also massive so it looks like you've shrunk down to the size of some kind of beetle and you're sitting among the blossom. It's very lovely. Excellent. I like that idea. That's great. So like something out of a film. Um, yeah, it's very honey i shrunk the kids. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the that sort of thing. Brilliant. So our uh, our lockdown rules have changed in England, Alison. Have you yet taken advantage of meeting up with up to six people in a park. I have. Oh, what have you done?
1: Oh, I've been on walks with people. Only one person at a time, though. Oh, no. And my sister and her children, which was lovely. I saw the baby in person for the Yay! first time rather than, you know, just waving at the door. That's so sweet. Yeah, I mean,
2: obviously,
0: <laughs> didn't
1: go within two metres of him or... um pick him up or anything but at least you know actually saw him and my other nephew which was lovely.
0: And I guess the other thing that's happening this will come out in July so who knows what will be going on then but um, as we're recording we're right in the middle of protests in the US and well and and in the UK as well um, following the brutal death of George Floyd and yeah how are you feeling about all of that? devastated
1: i'm so naive grace you know i still think how can this be happening in our world now you know how how can we still have such terrible racism going on and you know in our uniformed organizations that it still happens and i know that's really naive and i maybe it's just because i want the best but it just feels devastating
0: i'm like this is just appalling Mm. I saw someone write about how we're talking about white privilege and how the privilege that you and I have as white people to move through this world with doors pretty open to us and with ease for the most part, and you know not fearing for our lives when we encounter law enforcement and all that kind of thing. They talked to it about it as being like the water that fish swim in that fish don't really notice the water that they're in. And it's like that. And I guess, you know, it's not until you are somebody who isn't the majority or who doesn't have the privilege that you you notice it and you have to notice it. It's it's shoved down your throat sometimes quite literally. And we were talking about this before, that we, we kind of want to make very, very clear on this podcast that Black Lives Matter, don't we? And yeah. that we are against, you know... All forms of racism and prejudice, and particularly the institutional level. And you know, we're part of churches, we're part of the Church of England, and it's certainly not immune to that. So, um, yeah, yeah. Very Don't know what more to say, really, other than <laughs> no.
1: no, it's uh, we just need to keep praying and working for change and doing what we can. Mm. I guess.
0: And I'll I'll listen to um, Sharon Prentice's episode as well. I think I would recommend to people. I would say to listeners who are white that we, as white people, need to do the work ourselves of finding out about all this and educating ourselves. And um, one of the ways to do that is to listen to people of colour. Have you read um, Why I No Longer Talk to
1: White People About Race?
0: I am reading it I am halfway through it and it's amazing and um, everybody has to read it you must read this everybody it is just incredible did you know that that started off as a blog that book no the author um who I've just discovered is only 30 which is incredible um she wrote a blog about well that that very thing why she's no longer talking to white people about race and the issues that she'd found with trying to talk with white people about issues of race and the barriers that came up and just people not listening and and everything like that. And so she wrote this blog post as a kind of a final word on the matter (laughs) saying you need to go and do the work yourselves. And then that the comments that she got from that and the, the reaction led to her writing a book about it. And it's an amazing book. Yeah, that I think we both recommend to. Yeah, to lovely. To read. Read. It's a great book. Mm. Well,
1: talking about going and finding and doing things yourself leads us mm. nicely on to um, today's interview with Elaine
0: Storkey. Yes, Storky. yes. tell us who her, Elaine Storkey is. It, it's
1: it's her theme tune. It is go and go and get go and get sorted. She says right. So Elaine Storkey. Well, when I asked her how she'd like to be described. She's this is what she's written. It's brilliant. I'm usually called an academic, philosopher, social scientist, theologian, former president of Tearfund, senior member of Newnham College, Cambridge, broadcaster, writer, speaker. Just take your pick. I have no preference. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, dear. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, she's marvellous. Should we have a listen then?
1: Well, I'm delighted to have Elaine Storky speaking to me today. Uh, thank you for speaking to us, Elaine. I th- reckon I've been following your work for about 30 years or maybe even longer, which is quite a long time. God. <laughs> That's quite <clear. laughs> So I, I wonder if we could start by you telling us a bit about yourself so that we understand who you are. I'm guessing most people know who you are, but just in case, something about your Christian faith, how that's been shaped, and something about your history would be lovely.
2: Okay. Well, I've been around a long time. Um, I became a Christian when I was 16. Uh, I was born as a, brought up as a churchgoer. But I think I heard the gospel with clarity for the first time when I was about 16, and then nailed my colours to the mast, and I've been a Christian ever since. Went through a rocky period at university, decided to study um, philosophy because I thought that would be quite a challenging thing for a Christian, and it was challenging, more challenging than I had realised, and I just didn't have the knowledge or the ammunition or the background or the theology or the biblical wisdom to be able to handle it. Um, so I went through quite a dark period for a few weeks, but having come out of that at the other end um, was a very good experience. Because first of all, it taught me how painful doubt can be for people who are wanting to believe, um, but also how empty, completely empty the universe is without God. And so when you're there looking over the abyss, um, knocking on the door of the universe and there's nobody home, it is the most horrifying feeling for anybody who has any kind of spiritual sensitivity. So those those experiences in, in my teens at university were really important to me, and it's. I think it's taught me to be less judgmental towards people, much more compassionate towards people who are struggling uh, with whatever emotional or mental or spiritual issues. Um, and want to help, really, rather than want to make life worse for them <laughs> by giving them a heap of judgments to deal with, you know. And when my children were small, we had children, three on, on the trot, um I didn't want to go out to work full time. In fact, I didn't really want to go out to work at all, but I did eventually do night classes and I did them all in sociology because that was um, very easy to actually fit into family life. I did them in higher education colleges and so on. Um, So that was, and that that was actually very important too, that whole period of my life because I was home with children during the day, in the evenings I was teaching night classes. I was meeting women like myself who are housebound women largely non-christian housebound women and then i thought if only one could introduce them to the christian faith a lot of their issues they're, they're struggling with that even issues of identity what what meaning was what life was all about would actually fall into place for them and i did that i mean i was actually quite an evangelist in the in the class but it was interesting one one or two did become christians but then I realized, actually, the church isn't the answer. The church is also part of the problem. <laughs> and that was a horrible shock. <laughs> but they saw education as very important. And then suddenly there was all this church stuff where women were, as far as they could see, undermined, you know, disregarded. It, this was the era where women weren't um, in ordination, where most denominations didn't have women in leadership, except perhaps the Methodists and the Salvation Army and so on. And so it was... Uh, then it helped me to step back and look at the church as well as, um, you know, as, well as secular society. And I suppose I've been doing that ever since, really, <clears throat> looking, um, looking at what God is teaching us through the society that we live in, what God's saying to the church, and whole issues about gender, <clears throat> who we are as women, what it is to be a woman, and what issues face women today that we need to know about and so on. <laughs> um,
1: That's great. Thank you. Uh, So, next question Would you call yourself a Christian feminist and why or why not?
2: Well, I don't really call myself anything except Elaine, and I I answer to a lot of things, but I never take I mean, labels what's the point of having a label? Um, And I think I'm a feminist because somebody else once called me a feminist when I wrote a book in the 1980s called What's Right with Feminism, and I, I am a feminist, but um, sometimes people don't understand what feminism is, you know, they think it's like to be a feminist, you have to hate men. Uh, I don't hate men and, and therefore you've got to put them right on that. And actually, um, I think feminism just means recognizing that women are human beings too. And, um, there is a whole theology of humanity, of being male and female in God's image together, um, that needs to be explored and understood and, um, and it, its I think the church needs to be much more feminist in the way it handles things. And by that, I don't mean women-directed. I just mean um, you have to draw on the strengths and the gifts and the talents and the anointing of everybody in the church, um, irrespective of age, gender, um, background, ethnicity or whatever. And when we do that, then you begin to see a vibrant church that really is being empowered by God. So women have a lot to teach because women and men are different. And and the other thing about that, I think that the Bible gives us so many different things about men and women when you're exploring it. It doesn't just focus on difference, and those theologians who want to focus all the time on the difference between men and women, I think are leading us up the spout because you end up with hierarchies, you end up with kind of stereotypes, you end up with male dominance and so on, women's subservience, you end up with women being expected to fulfill certain roles and not others. But similarly, I think those people who just just focus on similarity—that we're the same—miss the difference because we're all so different. <laughs> I mean, I've been my to for donkey's years, and I know that men are different. <laughs> and if you'd press me, how I could give you lots of examples in our own lives, uh, which would be cultural examples because they're different from that in Africa or the cultures. But then the third thing is complementarity. The Bible often talks about men and women fitting together. Uh, You know, we make up for one another's lack or deficiencies, but the complementarians are different from that. They're a group in the church who really are hierarchicalists. They believe in a hierarchy. They believe that somehow um, men should be in control. Men should be actually uh, in heads of whatever it is, the the organization or the marriages, and that women should be in a very different, much more subservient position. I don't think that's complementarity at all. I mean, it's just hierarchy. Why do we call it that? Because um, then we can deal with it. But the other concept that the Bible has, and I think this is the most crucial one, is the union of male and female. And that's not just in sex. That's in being the image of God, being the body of Christ, uh, being the church, being the bride of Christ. We're in union with each other. And working out what that union means is so important. So in my theology, I, I really try and use all of those concepts, difference, sameness, complementarity, union. And when you do that, you get a really rich theology and it's all biblical. And I can't understand why people want to just hive off with one of these because you end up lopsided and you end up with really dysfunctional relationships between men and women.
1: Thank you. That's really helpful. Well, talking about the bit, the Bible. Um, you just had a new book out. Your latest one, "Women in a Patriarchal World," and the subtitle is 25 Empowering Stories from the Bible." And I must say, I've loved reading it. Can we start off by just telling us why you wrote the book and what your aims were when you when you were writing it?
2: Well, I partly wrote the book because I'd have written another book called "Scars Across Humanity," which is um, which took me eight years to write, and it's actually. It really is something that's very close to my heart, the way in which women are violated in every culture that exists. And if you want to know, if you want to take the idea of a, a cosmic woman or a global woman and say, where does, viol- where does violence occur in a global woman's life? It's right from the womb <clears throat> and selective abortion in the womb all the way through life. And this is really, when I was president of Tearfund for many years, I visited many, many different communities and saw yet another example of violence against women. And I started to write all of this down and some of it broke your heart. I mean, really, really horrendous, uh, especially in war-torn situations where women were raped by soldiers and militia. Women had their tongues cut out. I mean, it was just horrendous. So, asking the question, but why, you know, why are women targeted in this way? Why do so many different forms of violence against women um, in different cultures, why do we institutionalize it? As in female genital mutilation or child brides or honor killings or, you know, we go on in all of these cultures. So I wrote that book, and it took me eight years because it's very difficult to just concentrate on it. But everybody kept telling me, Elaine, this is a very depressing book. Um, even though you give us hope at the end, why don't you write something a bit more, <laughs> a bit less depressing? So I thought, hmm, thank you very much. I mean, it took me eight years to write this. All I want you to do is read it and then do something about it. So the book was, uh, in many ways, a huge success, but I could see that something else was needed um, that was actually not a panacea, but telling the same story in a different kind of way, and the, the way to do that is actually to look at the patriarchy of the scriptures and how women coped, <clears throat> what women who became very authentic women who had challenges to face, uh, what they did about them. So that's why I wrote it, and also because I love these women. You know, I've got to know them so well over the years, and and actually uh, the, the women in the Hebrew scriptures. They are spunky, amazing women, um, and I wanted to share their stories with with everybody else. I wanted to let people see you can be a nobody, and yet, you know, God can use you in a very powerful way in a very challenging situation. And uh, whether you're young or old or whatever, and similarly with the New Testament women, I just, I just longed for people to see it really and hear it. Fabulous!
1: I love the fact that we had to read a bit first, and then you described it, and then you applied it to today and then you ask us some questions and the parallels that you kind of relate each chapter to are intriguing. There's a lot of encouragement to turn our life experiences into action which you've always hint- already hinted at with um, scars into humanity. I suppose the question is how do you see this book meeting and need to help people to consider their life and their priorities and their calling? I think it depends on
2: who the women are and what stage in life they're, are, they're at because I hear... A lot of times, um, there are some women who are just terribly, terribly overworked. You know, they've got too much on in their lives. uh, They've they've got children. They've got careers. um, They've got parents that they need to keep an eye on and so on. And there's a certain stage in life, and I remember it myself. I'm through that stage now because my parents have died. My mother died last year, um, and that was the end of that period. But a period where everything is calling for something from you. You have responsibilities in so many areas, you're absolutely worn out. And I think me, uh, speaking to those women through the, some of these stories of women who also had an awful lot on their plates, but actually still face a challenge with God, I think is quite important. But also elderly women, and there's quite a few elderly women in the book, um, the, the widow and her mite, you know, the and the way that uh, women can write themselves off when they're elderly. And yet some of the most exciting women I've met in my life have been very old. And I wanted to be able to, to, for, to give them the sense that, you know, you're not finished until the last whistle blows. And there's something for you to be doing there and um, something for you to be sharing. And so I think really enabling women at whatever stage they are in life to realize that that's the stage where God can use them specifically for very, very special tasks and all you need is is just to keep going back to God and saying, OK, what is it? What have you got for me now? So it's trying to encourage women. I want to encourage women. And I want to encourage women that if they go through periods of doubt, that's fine. If they go through periods where they're exhausted, that's fine too. If they go through periods where you know, they don't really see the end of the tunnel yet, that's fine because all of these things are normal life. Um, and also, if they are struggling themselves against some area of patriarchy in our culture, and it's there right around us. Um, That's right to struggle. We have to struggle. We have to be authentic women in our age as well.
1: Thank you for that. At the end of another chapter, you ask why um, we think that the passages aren't frequently preached on. So the passage is about women, which is a great question. Uh, So... Mm. uh, what do you think? Why do you think that churches generally avoid preaching on
2: passages about women in the Bible? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think partly because in the past most preachers have been male, and my husband once confessed to me, we'd only been married a short time, how he used to read the Bible and then he come across a woman's kind of story. And think, "Oh, let's get through this to the real stuff." And he had to repent about that because he realized that all of that really was the real stuff. Oh. And I mean, <clears throat> he volunteered that information to me, and was actually, I was glad he told me that because I hadn't ever thought about that. But I've gathered since then that a lot of men feel like this. This is just women's stuff. Uh, it's no no particular significance. So I think that's partly why that the men have predominantly been the preachers. And, and this is why I make a big plea for narrative theology to be part of doctrine as well, to understanding doctrine. So a lot of um, a lot of people think that preaching ought to be about imparting doctrine to people, telling people what to believe and how to believe it, and so on. And they do that very often by preaching about Saint Paul, sometimes uh, the Gospels, uh, or sometimes in the Psalms or the Prophets. But I think that uh, the t- storytelling is such a vital part um, of. helping people understand what Christianity is all about. And women on the whole have been good storytellers. And I think when you um, get a man who understands the nature of the story and therefore can actually understand women's stories in the scriptures, it starts to come alive in a different kind of way. But I think we have to recover narrative theology itself. And when we do that, we will recover far more preaching about women or preaching with women as examples in the pulpit. Uh, Until then, we probably won't.
1: So narrative theology, you mean telling the story?
2: Yes, telling the story um, as Jesus does. I mean, he, he's doing narrative theology all the time with his parables. That's what they're all about. He doesn't kind of give them a homily about ethics or anything like that. <clears throat> he just tells a story, so I went out to sow the seed. And then you're all listening, and there's a huge point that you get at the end of the story. So I, I think that we've, we kind of lose that at our peril. Um, it's vital. Brilliant.
1: One thing that really struck me when you were talking about the three women in Moses' life, I mean it comes oh, yes. up again a few times but there was that one point and, and you're talking about Moses being protected from being killed as a baby and how they work together without even maybe realising that. In your reflection you asked uh, the reader to think about how we can work together and part of the idea of this podcast, eventually, we hope, is that it will help people to find each other and support each other and to be able to work together. But I'm just wondering how you found other people, especially women, to work with over the years.
2: Well, it, I think it's a wonderful question, that Alison. I mean, I, that really is a vital question. How do you find... Um, why do you work together and what are you working together for? And that it can happen in lots of different ways. So when I was a, <clears throat> a younger woman and a young mother... I worked with lots of women from different denominations. In fact, it was pulled together by a Catholic woman who um, loved mother Teresa and she'd had a personal letter from mother Teresa saying what they needed more were, were, were bandages. And, um, so if she got, could get together a bunch of women to tear up old sheets and roll them up to as bandages, it would be wonderful. Well, this woman whom I love enormously, I'm still, she's still one of my closest friends, then phoned us all round and would you do this for Mother Teresa? Well, Catholicism isn't my tradition, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I love this woman and the other women who came. And we came from many different denominations and, and some not Christian denominations at all. And we had a couple of hours every probably twice a week um where we sat together had coffee and cakes and then talked and rolled these um tears up into huge numbers of of uh, bandages for mother teresa what that taught me and we, we were very effective i mean we shipped loads and loads of stuff off to india we got people bringing their t- their, <laughs> their old sheets to us and so on and it it was we felt we were doing something useful we were working together constructively we were doing it within the confines of our lives then. We all had toddlers. We all had small children that we brought together. And we usually took uh, engaged somebody um, who uh, would come and then just play with the children whilst we're doing all the, all the children would tot around and we'd play them, we take it turns ourselves. So that was a very important way of working together. We were in a neighborhood, just that we're neighbors. But the other way I found is very, very effective is coming together on a cause. Um, In a sense, you could say that was a cause, but actually the the most important thing was just the relationship between the women who came. But but God lays on women's hearts certain kinds of issues. And so I found women working together in, um, in helping prostitutes and working with prostitution, often to help people out of prostitution because that's what they need most of all. And they set up safe houses. You know, they, they actually um, become friends to prostitutes. They help people to, um, to have food when they're hungry. They get them off drugs and a whole range of stuff like that. And when that message catches on and you go to an area, and I've been to so many in the country and, and overseas, where they think, dream, breathe prostitution, these Christian women all the time, And you you know that God is touching them and they're working together because they, they all know what it's about. They all are committed to those areas. So I think finding, and this is what I often ask women in women's conferences, what cause, what issue has God laid on your heart and what are you going to do about it? And it might be that you don't do anything about it right now because you haven't got the time except start to read about it, get on web pages, look at who else is doing it, invite a speaker over. But sooner or later, if God's laid that on your heart, it's time to do something. And then you find other women who are bearing the same kind of burden and you work together. And women are incredibly effective at networking and getting things done. I mean, they are amazing. And when you've been president of Tear Fund and you've seen how women in Africa work together, I mean, they are fantastic and women in Asia work together uh, and there's no kind of complications about it it's just expected it's a way of life but then I think we in the west have got to do something very similar because it it, it matters and it works. Mm, thank you. Can you just tell us what your image of God is? Don't have an image um, if you mean a visual image and I think I've been fairly careful not to have a visual image because I take seriously the first moment you don't um, create an image of God. I think I have a, a mental and emotional image, and that's one of a, of comfort. See God as a comforter, as a, a compassionate um, spiritual force and presence, and, uh, one, and uh, somebody who is empathetic and will understand. So it's that sense of being in the presence of God is being in the presence of somebody who knows me best than I know myself. Um, And that's my abiding understanding of God. It's not an image as such. In fact, I've no idea. I couldn't even construct an image. I can imagine what Jesus looked like, and Jesus is the um, the image of the invisible God. Um, But at that time and place, and I think we we can't anthropomorphize, and that word means make God into a human person. Um, too much because God isn't a human person so just to think of God as a as a father or 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 as a midwife a friend of mine who was really really violated as a girl constantly abused and raped and so on and when she had a child um, because she couldn't face having an abortion uh, she was raped and had the child the person who bought her the most love in her life was the midwife who knew her story and when she became a Christian a few months later, she, there's no way she could call God father. There's no image of God that was male, but it was the midwife. And so she, when she has a, a thought about God, it's this midwife who brought love and new life out of her, out of her worn out, abused body. And that for me was very powerful. So I think people must have their own understanding of who God is, um, from the, both from their own experiences, but most of all, from all the images that the scriptures give us. Um, You know, Jesus sees himself as a mother hen um, gathering her chicks under her wings, and that was a powerful image. And sometimes God is a rock um, or a fortress. You know, that's that, again, is a powerful image of rescue and safety. And so all of those images are just as good um, as human images for God, because you put them all together and you start to get something about the character and nature of God. Mm.
1: Thank you. Um, so is there anything particular that you call God?
2: Um, I still call God Father. And sometimes I, I don't call, I wouldn't use that too much in public unless I know that the people I'm praying with are comfortable with that. I pray now with a lot of people who would be very uncomfortable with the Father in, image of God or speaking to God as Father. And I don't use male pronouns for God either. So I would much. I talk about God's self rather than himself, God himself. And I've had to do that very consciously because I move in feminist circles and because I'm often with women who have got very, very negative experiences of men and they can't bear to hear anything male. Um, And if you do then begin to talk about God in male terms, even inadvertently, they're out of the room, the door's shut. So you have to be very careful what you're communicating to people. And since God isn't male, God is beyond sexuality and gender. There's no point in limiting God in that way. Mm. So I called Godfather because um, fatherhood for me is something very powerful, very empathetic, very warm, very comforting. My father was a wonderful man. I loved him to bits. And the most wonderful thing when he died was that I suddenly realized there's no unfinished business, no unfinished business with my dad. He loved me to the very end. I loved him to the very end. There's not, He hasn't left me with any baggage to sort out. And I was so grateful. Um, <clears throat> and he died in his 90s just not long ago. Uh, but a lot of women don't have that um, privilege of actually having no unfinished business. So, yeah, fatherhood is a very important image to me. And I don't I have no problems with calling God father. But um, but, yeah, God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And and in you, whatever understanding you give to that, I think God will help you to draw into worship of almighty God.
1: Thank you. So then our final question do you think is the most important issue affecting Christian women today?
2: I think the most important issue are the human issues that affect us all Mm. so I think issues of climate change are absolutely vital because they're there and the planet is heading into a direction that we are responsible for and I think Christian women need to do something about that just the same as young people do and dear old Greta is leading the way in that and all the rest of it those are the key issues that Christian women need to face but also issues of post-truth I just gave a lecture in Spring Harvest for that and I think those issues are absolutely vital not being swayed by post-truth understanding what we believe and why we believe it and understanding what to do when people lie in front of you and the lies are writ large in our culture and our society and And politicians are using them to distort and manipulate people. I think those are very big issues. And then of peace and militarism and the rise of weapons and the arms. All of those are huge, huge issues. But these are human issues that I think every Christian ought to be involved in. And few Christians are, because at the end of the day, we're ever so parochial. You know, we are so bothered about our own little patch and what's going on in our church and whether or not the people next to us have squeaky boots and all this kind of stuff that we, the big things pass us by and we don't see how vital they are for human, Christian human beings today to be at the front leading in these movements um, against, against evil, against principalities and powers in high places, because that's what they all are. Each one of these movements is addressing principalities and powers. But then when you move on to women specifically, I still think it's violence against women that's crucial. I mean, if you were to see the level of violation I have seen, if you would listen to the pain and the hurt and the abuse and the brokenness of, of women, of lovely women, lovely women across the world, uh, you would understand, everybody would understand why this is a vital issue on which we need to stand together and we need to work together and we need to say not in our name, not in our patch, and we need to draw men into this because they're very effective. Um, the men who've championed my book and moved into – um, programs against violence against women uh, have been incredibly effective and, and powerful men so I think that's that's crucial um, and coming and also countering some of the wrong stereotypes of women that women themselves sometimes produce I mean that you know women for whatever reason feel they have to be a certain kind of person in order to sell themselves or be successful or find them partner or whatever. And I, I'm keen to release some of those women from those kind of crippling bondages and stereotypes. So freedom, um, allowing women to flourish, uh, uh, countering the violence against women, all of these things, and then helping women to their responsibility before God. You know, we're here for a purpose. We're here to, to love God, to serve our neighbor um, to be therapeutic help to those who are struggling, to be compassionate, to be gentle, to be kind, to be loving, um, to watch the next generation and help it grow. All of those things are women's things, and I think they're all vital because if Christians aren't out there doing the work at the, at the front, at the very front, leading the way, other people will be leading and they will be taking it in a very different direction. So I think that, and this is why women, Christian women also need to work with secular women who got the message, who understand what these things are about. And in my experience, working with some of these women is an amazing experience because they give and give and give um, because they love women. They They want to see the best women. And when they find Christian women who want the same, there's a new dynamic, a new spark and a new interest in the gospel. So those are some of the issues. There's loads more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Marvelous, thank you very much. I'm sure that your um, your new book will help some some women to kind of just to start to kind of tip their um, dip their toe into that kind of movement and and yeah. them and hopefully Wonderful. yes, I, I think it will. I think it's really accessible. Yeah. Well. Uh, Elaine, thank you so much for speaking to us on the Recovering God
2: podcast. Oh, thank you for your patience and for having me.
1: It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely and I uh, hope I'll be reading your stuff for another 30 years.
2: <laughs> oh, it might be a bit of a tall hoarder, but <laughs> <laughs> hard. Yes, well, blessings to all the women who are listening to the podcast. God loves you. Get stuck in there. Thank you, Elaine. Amen. <laughs>
0: what did you think of Elaine? Oh, she's incredible. That was an amazing interview. She just has so many gems and pearls of wisdom there. um, One that stands out is when she was talking about how if we talk too much about the similarities between men and women or too much about the differences between men and women, then we're going to miss something. Mm. And how you, you need to have a full understanding of both. Um, and she talked about something that I'd never heard before, which is the difference between complementarity, which she sees as being in the Bible, and complementarianism. What did you make of that? And can you yes. define those terms for yes. us? No. <laughs> uh, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't quick enough because if I'd have been
1: quick enough, I'd have got to talk more about that. Because when I when I listened back, I was like, oh. I should have got to talk more about that. That's just an incredible idea. Why didn't I get to talk more about that? Then I suppose that the podcast would have ended up even three times as long as it as it is. Com- Complementarity is in the Bible, she said, and I was like, and I should have said, where? How does that happen? But I suppose we could think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And con- complementarianism is—it's an excuse, really, for men to be seen as ch- in charge you know we we're not the same we're different but and we've got different roles and obviously men should be leaders and so that's um complementarianism is that the right mm. word
0: yeah 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 she said the the complementarianism is hierarchy yeah. and has has a hierarchy built into it but the complementarity that she sees in the bible doesn't have a hierarchy it just says that there are differences between men and women and similarities and men and women work together and i think she said she talked about union didn't she and how yeah, the yeah. union of male, male and female is what makes the body of christ and it's what makes the image of god which is something that so often gets lost when we when we have a complementarianism view and actually it's important to say that there are complementarian feminists as well it's it's you know we should have one on at some point (laughs) but um uh so it's not just that complementarians say that women aren't um human or or are less than men but the way that they approach it is that men should be leaders and women shouldn't but in that you can fall down the slippery slope of saying that therefore women are not as spiritual women don't reflect the image of God in the same way or as well as men, so men should be leaders and women shouldn't mm. so that's where and so I liked that she said the union of male and female is what makes us the body of christ it what makes us the image of God male and female. I, I thought that was really interesting.
1: She talked about it in four different ways and said, dismiss any of them we shouldn't lose any of them mm. um, and yeah, the union thing was interesting because. Because of the way she described it as being not just about sex but about being that image of God, you know mm. you need you need both in order to both and more i suppose in mm. order to
0: to represent god mm. well she's she said about uh, similar to what Sharon Prentice said in um a couple of episodes ago, she says that we need as a church to draw on the strengths and talents of everyone in the church, regardless of gender, race, class, etc. A bit like Sharon was saying, you need to look around church and say, who isn't here? Who isn't represented? So, So like Sharon was talking predominantly about race, then in the same way, if we don't draw on the strengths and the talents of women, particularly their leadership strengths and leadership talents, then we're lacking something in the church. That union isn't there. Absolutely. Mm. I have a copy of Scars Against, uh, Sc- sorry, Scars Across Humanity, her the book she was talking about that took her eight years to write, and yeah. I can understand why it's um, amazing and um, very densely packed with information and, and um, facts. I thought it was interesting that she'd been told that was too depressing; <laughs> she needed to write something a little bit more easygoing. <laughs> yeah. Scars Across Humanity is. Um, is a
1: book that I, is, has been on my list for about a year now, and I still
0: haven't read it. So I'll have to co- borrow your copy. You borrow my copy and I'll borrow your copy of Women in a Patriarchal World, because I haven't read that one yet. It's a deal. Tell me about the book. It's very easy to read, very accessible. It The book was published on the
1: Thursday, and because of lockdown, I managed to get Elaine, because she's not going out anywhere in a timetable is not completely full and so uh, I interviewed her the week after so I downloaded it on Kindle and read it and I'm not a big reader really and read it and it was just brilliant and the the whole structure of it that just keeps challenging is brilliant and yeah I mean there's some bits that I, I kind of think I should I need to get back to this I need to let it challenge me some more I can't remember which those bits are so don't ask me I mean, in the interview, I talk about things that were interesting about Moses. But I mean, she brings out passages in the scripture that I've not even noticed before.
0: Can we see if I can find one? Yes, please. I didn't want to ask because I didn't want you to (laughs) Um, put on the spot.
1: So she talks about A Tale of Three Widows, which I have read recently. In that, You know that I keep talking about that book, um, The Woman is Midrash. There's something about that in there. A wise woman of Abel Beth Macca in 2 Samuel. Okay. Two Mothers in Desperate Dispute, we know that one. Uh, Holder, speaking truth to power. Have you ever heard of Holder? No. No. Where is she? Two Kings. Oh. Uh, And she just brings out so many things that I have never even noticed before. I think it's just amazing. I keep reading all these things where where all these women are writing about women in the Bible. I'm like, where why why have I never heard of these people?
0: Where have they been? How can I have missed them? And I thought her the thing she said about narrative theology maybe not being taken as seriously as doctrine and the the proper systematic theology of what we should believe and that that tends to focus more on Paul like she said and well men in the bible but interesting that she said that women are very good at storytelling and I guess analyzing stories and drawing out truth from stories and so was Jesus but we tend to overlook that maybe (laughs) Well, and then she talked to she I loved what she was saying about women working together. You know, she's, she had a lot of comments about things that women are good at and story being one of them and working together on particular issues being another one. What did you make of that? it was great. I mean, interesting.
1: She talked about um, Africa and Asia and said, we need to be doing that here. I think part of our problem is that we're not doing that here. And I think that is starting to change with things like Me Too. And, you know, you do see in, in small kind of local neighbourhood groups and things where people start to work, women particularly start to work together to change. And we've seen, you know, historically, we see that happening again and again over the world. But I, I think here in Britain, we are all so busy and our timetables are usually chock a block. And therefore, you know, putting yourself out to do something with other women is sometimes quite hard work. And, you know, you're already exhausted. Mm. Um, I think she's absolutely right. And I loved her thing about ask God what you should be doing and then find that passion. And then even if you don't have time to do it, you know, try and read stuff or talk to people who who know about it. So that when you do have time, you can fly with it.
0: Mm. So that was great. Um, yeah, absolutely. I loved her story about tearing up sheets for bandages for Mother Teresa, and it just made me think about at the moment. So I, I really enjoy sewing, <laughs> which I just do. It's something I I have always enjoyed, and there's been a big call during this pandemic for people who can sew to make. Face coverings to make uh, scrubs for the NHS, to make headbands to attach masks to for the NHS. There's, there's a load of stuff that's going on, and there are these groups of, let's be honest, predominantly women who are into sewing on Facebook and and everywhere who are who are making thousands and thousands of things yeah. together, and that there are communities that are talking about it and sharing and. There are women with connections to different hospitals who are then getting people to send things to them and then they're delivering it. There's quite a lot going on behind the scenes with all of that, which is really encouraging. And that's, again, of course, there are men doing it as well, but it's predominantly women stepping up and seeing an issue and seeing something that they can help with, maybe a skill that they've been raised with that they feel like they can help in some way. So that just reminded me of something that's going on now here. Mm. What did you think of her images of God? She said that it's the comforter for her.
1: Yes, yeah, lovely. It's a, lo- a lovely image, isn't it? Mm. Although she did say, I don't really have an image because God is so many different things. I uh, Her thing about, you know, God being a midwife for that woman that she was talking about, mm. it was very powerful, and very distressing. <laughs> Why distressing? Well, because of what she'd been through. Yeah, but
0: actually God met her in that midwife, which is just so wonderful. Sometimes people can think that female images of God, not that midwives have to be women, but you know, again they predominantly are. People sometimes think that female or feminine images of God are somehow weaker, maybe, than the male images and the warrior images and Anyone who's had any contact with a midwife knows that midwives are certainly not weak. <laughs> they are they're very strong. The work that they do is uh, takes a great deal of power and care at the same time. And so I think that's a very good representation of God in many ways. And and there are more Images like that that we need to uncover and start to use. Yeah, but uh, I do this thing sometimes where I say to people,
1: "How has God spoken to you?" You know, I'm working with a group, and um, and and then I write them all up, and you know, it'd be like through nature or through poetry or through music or through preaching or through the Bible, and and you know, but pay, reams and reams and reams and reams of that. But if you probably said to those people. And what is your image of God, and how does God work through those things? It'd be much more restricted. I think we talked about this with the with the um, the last episode about how we only use a few words for God, and actually, there are so many more that we could use, and and uh, there are so many in the Bible that we could use that we just don't.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we should post some of those on Twitter to. Highlight them to people. <laughs> yeah, would be a good
1: idea. Maybe we could have
0: a whole series on
1: other names for God.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> I've just been reading um, Exodus and, you know, God appearing in, in so many different ways. It's really spoken to me when I've read it this time. In the cloud and in the fire and in the still small voice and in the way that Moses' face glowed after we'd been with God. I mean, just some incredible images.
0: Mm. Fabulous.
1: Uh, But those aren't names for God. Those are just kind of
0: images, I suppose. I guess our names come from our images, though, don't they? Yeah. The way we describe our experiences is just putting language to something that we see or feel, isn't it? So... Yeah, all to try actually, together,
1: and this is the problem with God, isn't it? And you know, we'd like to make God accessible, easily understandable, and God just isn't. The more we, the more work we, do, the more certainly, the more work I do on this, the more I'm. Who is God? I know God is real. I know God speaks to me. I know God loves me. But the question of who God is, the further I go on, the more that question is being asked,
0: and the fewer <laughs> answers in some ways there are. Mm, definitely true what did you make of well i think she cheated a little bit because you asked her what the most important issue affecting christian women was and she gave i counted four answers um but i can't blame her for any of them so (laughs) she says uh or she had three issues that she saw as being human issues that Mm. uh, she said every christian needs to be involved in identifying and and tackling which were climate change post-truth and um, peace and militarism. And then the issue that she said specifically to women was violence against women, which is um, unsurprising given her book and uh, that she'd written before and um, what she's been involved with. So what did you make of that list? Well, it's very much her because all the way through,
1: and indeed in the book that she was talking about, and all the way through the interview what she's actually saying is women you need to get up and you need to start acting you need to find the causes that God's calling you to and get stuck in so that's that's very much her and and and, you know she would say to men as well as as much as to women obviously her her passion is for women to be used in the same way that men are, you know, equally, rather than just being left behind. Yes, that's very much her. Get up, get on with it. Um, I'm, I need to go. She talked about her um, speaking at Spring
0: Harvest, didn't she? And I, yeah. I'm going to see if I can try and find that online. Yeah, I think it all still is online because they, they put it all up, didn't they? And I think it is still there. So, yeah, everybody go have a listen to that. Um, I love that idea of we can sometimes talk a lot about patriarchy and the ways that women are marginalized and maybe not able to do things as easily as men. But I love it when you get someone who comes along and says, that's not an excuse. Mm. You need to get up and do things anyway, in spite of that. And the book giving examples of women who did just that, (laughs) who lived in incredibly patriarchal societies and probably had, well, definitely had fewer opportunities than we do today doing incredible things is very inspiring
1: yeah absolutely people with no voice mm. had voices yeah because it's challenging though dare, sorry yeah yeah because they dare to speak out they dare yeah. they dare to be unpopular they dared to not be taken seriously they mm they made themselves well they put themselves in the way really they drew attention to themselves in a way that that um that women really shouldn't have done in those societies
0: well and then and then it affected your it could have affected your potential of marriage which had a big effect on your life and how you could live and um and be supported, and the family that you had around you, and it it had such a knock on effect, and so there was so much to be lost by standing up. And you know, women can lose and are losing things today by standing up, but in the UK, certainly less than <laughs> in other places around the world. Yeah, and you know, then so talks about that, doesn't she? She talks about women being concerned
1: about image and not getting on and standing up and being the person that God created them to be, but. Mm she didn't use the word being submissive or you know compliance but that's I'm guessing that's what she was inferring well I suppose the way we need to bring this uh, to land grace is by saying women we need to get out there and get doing and but also to not feel bad if at the moment we
0: can't (laughs) it's a very good balanced summary I like it (laughs) right so thank you all for listening yeah thanks bye Thank you for listening to this episode of Recovering God Podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram Recovering underscore God or contact us by email at RecoveringGodPodcast at gmail.com.